and the importance of a member committing to a body. And we all get to see that uh, in a way, not an ordinance of a church that we're going to be doing, but in a way like the ordinance of baptism where we, we see symbolically what, uh, what Christ has done for us when someone goes down in the waters of baptism and come out in union with Christ, sim- symbolizing in union with Christ what God has done already spiritually, and then just reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us. And in the covenant commitment service, we'll remind ourselves of our commitment to each other, the importance of that. Uh, how that's a very biblical thing to do. Uh, so um, I would encourage you to just be engaged when those, some of whom uh, are amongst our boundless group, will be members. They'll be in front of the church and we'll be covenant, covenanting with each other at the end of the service. And a little fellowship afterwards as well, some light refreshments and that. Encourage you to participate in that as well and just encourage those uh, who have chosen that route uh, of membership and you can be a part of uh, that, that encouragement ministry to them, okay? So uh, just a, a few announcements, some things coming up, things we're reminding you of on Thursday night and bring up to you again uh, today, the women's conference coming up. Um, uh, I go by memory here, which sometimes gets me in trouble. I'm, I'm better with a slide, even though that's not perfect either. But I believe it's October 8th and 9th, uh, Friday night and Saturday here at TBC. Uh, that's obviously for ladies, uh, a women's conference. So ladies... Um, if you want to get to know more uh, of our ladies in our fellowship, uh, learn more about some great uh, scriptural things with a guest speaker and, and different breakout sessions that Friday night and Saturday, encourage you to sign up for that. It is a $40 registration. Uh, there's lots of time to do that. But if you would like uh, some scholarship, some help with that, there is some money available. See Christy if you're interested in that. Um, and, uh, and they'll make sure uh, you get uh, some discount to that, okay? Also, the Devoted Conference is on our radar. I was uh, putting up here what the dates of that are. It's the first uh, weekend in November, November 5th through 7th, down in Ridgecrest, North Carolina. Another place you need to register again, devotedconf.com. Go to that website, sign up. A number of you have already. All your leaders uh, in Boundless will be attending. Really looking forward to a great weekend there. There is... Uh, financial assistance available for that as well. It's $125 is the regular rate. And if you need some assistance with that, there's, there's financial assistance. It's limited. So if you're interested in that, see us. See us soon. Um, myself, Clay, one of our leaders, and we'll, we'll set aside some money for you, for you as long as it's uh, available. Okay. Also, um, we know, but you know about Boundless Thursdays, right? We enjoy Boundless on Sundays here, and so glad you guys came. There's also Boundless Thursdays that go 7 p.m. each Thursday. We meet in the Ministry Center, uh, meet at 7 p.m. We go till about 8.30 uh, officially, and then unofficially we stick around for a while. And if many need to go right away to get back to their studies or other things to do, the rest of us shut her down at 10.30, 11 o'clock, just enjoying fellowship and things. Just a great time if you have time to fit that into your schedule. We're going through the book of First John, really enjoying the scriptures together and just getting to know each other better encouraging each other in the walk, our walk with the Lord. So uh, encourage you to be a part of that. Bring a friend. We just have a great time with uh, music and in the teaching, in encouragement. A little bit of food doesn't hurt late at night there. And uh, we have a good time together. Along with Boundless Thursday, something a ministry opportunity uh, for you that are musically inclined. Um, Mike, Mike Jackson here leads our, what you might call our praise band, on Thursday nights where he leads our time of worship in music. 
and uh, would like to lay out an opportunity if you want to assist in that ministry of music on Boundless Thursdays to see Mike um, regarding that. If actually he would like you to uh, see him today after Boundless, we'll also send an email out later in the week. So if you uh, would like to participate perhaps in vocals or there's a particular instrument uh, you're inclined to play and uh, would like to be used in service to our ministry, in the area of music, then uh, please see Michael. That would be playing on Thursday nights again at uh, Thursday Night Boundless. If you're interested in that, see Michael today. Again, we'll send an email out to remind you or those that aren't here. But um, if that's something you'd like to participate in, see Michael. What that will include is auditions of sort that would happen this Thursday, okay, this Thursday night after Boundless. Uh, you'd have a chance with some music that Michael pro- pro- uh, will provide to you and uh, him, along with Zach, uh, playing together and see if that'll all work. So uh, keep that on your radar. See Michael, look for the email, and see if you want to commit to that. All right? Let's open up in a word of prayer, and we'll thank the Lord for our time and his blessing through the time in his word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for uh, your blessed uh, presence with us today. Lord, we are... uh, confident that you are with us today, that you promise not to leave us, not to forsake us. In fact, Lord, when you ascended to heaven, you, you sent the comforter, the promised uh, Holy Spirit to abide not only in our presence, but in us. Those who have believed on you have the present tr- spirit of the, of the Godhead, the Trinity, abiding within us to strengthen us, to convict us, to comfort us, to assist us, to guide us through the ministry of the word and its interpretation. Lord, you, 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 you've taken a, a dead sinner and made him alive in Christ. And today we rejoice in that, that we have spiritual life, the opportunity to know you, to understand your word, to apply it to our lives, the, the opportunity to change, to grow, Lord, when I was dead in my sins, there was absolutely no opportunity for relationship with you until you reached down. You, you revived me. You changed me. You, you gave me even the faith to, to look to you and to trust you. And, and, and Lord, I'm so thankful that I, 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 I trusted in you and Christ alone. And how today, Lord, we want to learn more about you. Lord, there's many things that uh, distract us today that are on our hearts. There are many things that are important and many things that we just need to give to you. We've been, we've been bearing burdens we should not bear. And, and Lord, uh, help us today to uh, uh, set our worries on you, Lord, to look to you, to seek your kingdom and your righteousness, uh, to allow the word to have clarity and work in our lives. So help us to be attentive. Help us to apply what, we, what we're taught. Help Clay as he teaches, Lord, on these fundamental, important, critical truths of the Christian faith. And may we be blessed, encouraged, and, and just... Uh, just to find ourselves in, in a closer walk with you with the decisions we make as the words lay before us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. All right. Got to warm you up. We are uh, excited to get back into our study of the gospel this morning. You know, if you've been here, how many of you are new? Just curious, this morning. Just raise your hand. Nice and proud. Hi. Let's go. All right, a few of you. All right, so I wasn't going to tell you what we do if none of you are new. So what we do on Sundays, Sunday mornings, is we, uh, we like to open our time together uh, looking at some of these what we call core convictions. Um, it's just incredibly important that you guys kind of cement 
some convictions at this stage in your lives, stage in your Christian walk. And uh, as leaders in the body, we're going to try to help you crystallize some of those and think through what God's Word has to, has to say about those on Sunday mornings. You heard on Thursday nights in, in our college ministry, we're going through an exposition of 1 John. So, kind of both angles. We're going from the Word out on Thursday nights and then from your life in um, on Sunday mornings, or generally speaking. Um, so, what have we been studying? This is review, so remember, the quicker you answer, the faster we get through it. We've been studying the gospel, all right? We've been studying the gospel. Why do we start here, this semester? Of the first here we go, of the first importance. And where is that, where is that language from? 1 Corinthians 15, right. What does Paul say there? Oh boy. You could cheat. You could open and... and Okay, yeah, he, but he, my point is he, he starts, he's reminding the church of the gospel that he handed to them, right? And he said this is of first importance, meaning it's, this is central, foundational to your Christian life. There's, there's no more important thing you can know, according to Paul, than the gospel. And we looked at, um, just in summary, really four, to call it components or like themes of the gospel message. What are they? Just summarize them. God, man... Christ and response, okay? So just like categories in your mind as you're thinking through God, starting with God, moving to man, why we were created, the problem, what happened in the fall, then Christ, what has he done to remedy the problem, and then the response that we press upon every, every human being. So those are kind of our, our, our headings, if you will, as we want to think about the gospel, and those are what we've been sort of structuring our messages around. We looked first at God, the good creator. Remember that? We looked in Genesis 1 and 2, and we talked about how we have to start with God if we're going to understand the gospel. We have to understand who he is, that he exists, that we're dependent upon him, why he made us, etc., etc. So we have to know that he's our good creator, and then we also have to know something about ourselves, don't we? What do we call last week's message? Remember the title of it? We talked about the purpose of man. Man, the rebellious son. So we talked about God, colon, the good creator. And then last week we talked about man, the rebellious son. And we emphasized the purpose of man. That's what you said. Man, the rebellious, yeah, either one. I gave you, I gave you an alternate. You know, you could, whichever one you want. Image son, very similar. Yeah, so we've got to know who we are, Right? And why we were, we were created in the first place. So we're, we're in the image of God. We're his regal children. We're his sons. Sonship. And then we also have to know what went badly wrong. Remember? And what remains badly wrong. We've got to know the bad news of sin before the good news of the gospel makes sense. We've got to know that we have cancer before we want a treatment for cancer. Right? And so, our sinful natures are so pervasive, and we're really going to talk about that this morning. Um, but let's just, before we jump into that, you talked about our purpose. What, what were some of the summary statements of the purpose of man that you guys wrote down from last week? Okay, yes. As human beings, we represent God. So, we are made in His image. That's what being made in His image means, in His likeness. We represent Him. We reflect what He's like to the world. And what was the one, one word on the end of that that we kind of summarized that with? 
Dominion, no. Sonship, yes. Dominion is closely related, though. So, right. So we've got representing God, and the category for that, the descriptor of that is sonship. What else do we have? What else do we see in Genesis 1 and 2? Dominion, yeah. What do we say? What, it was another R word. Reigning. So we reign for God, and not like reign, but like reign, you know, with a the, with the crown. I could teach children's lessons, right? You know, I got the hand motions. And what was the one-liner for that? One, the one word for reigning with God. Dominion, that's what we do. Kingship, yes, kingship. So sonship and kingship. Kingship, we reign for God. We're his, we're his kings. Human beings are regal. We were created that way. We were created to, to rule this world. That's the dominion word that we looked at last week. To rule the world on God's behalf, not on our own, not independent from God, but on His behalf, with His delegated authority, and for His glory, and for His purposes. And so that was our, our second R word. We reign for God. What else do we do? Genesis 2 especially shows us this. Right, we reside with God, and that was just my attempt to keep it in the R's so you can remember it, all right? Uh, reside with God, we dwell with Him. And what was the word that we tagged onto that? Priesthood, yes, priesthood. Why? What does the garden symbolize? Presence, yeah, it's God's presence. It's sort of the tabernacle and temple, remember, are they evoke the garden. So there's tons of garden imagery in, the, in the, the, the construction of the tabernacle and the temple, reminding us that the garden was God's special dwelling. And Adam was tasked with working and keeping the garden. Remember that? Those are the same two verbs that are used of the priests later to work and keep the tabernacle and temple. So humans, in other words, were created to live in His presence and serve Him in glad obedience. You're created to live in His presence and serve God with glad obedience. So if you just want a, a summary, just again, just by way of review, at creation, God intended His faithful image bearers to increase, be fruitful and multiply, to increase and mediate His blessed reign and His presence over all creation. We had a central task to extend the borders of the garden and make all of the world a habitable, a habitable cultivated civilization unto His glory. If you want to put it slightly differently, God intended His glory to fill the earth through the increase of His image, image bearers who trust Him, who worship Him, who commune with Him and serve Him, reign for Him, and enjoy Him forever. So why do you think this is crucial to know as we're talking about the Gospel? Yeah, we, we royally failed, right. At it, so it helps us to see how far we've fallen. Yeah, it's going to give us some categories for what Christ is recreating us for and unto, right? Yeah, right. So he just mentioned a really key point which we'll, we'll flesh out, hopefully, in, in some time to come. But every, God's purpose for creation really kind of hinged on the faithfulness of human beings to fulfill it. Or we might say faithfulness of a human being um, to fulfill it. 
So we see that hinging in the Lord Jesus and really fulfilled in his coming. The God-man came. God himself came and took it up in a human body to fulfill, to fulfill his purposes for creation. But before we get there, we've got to know who we were as human beings, why God created us, and we have to know how far it is that we've actually fallen. We have to know what the Bible actually says about the sinfulness of human beings or what we're calling the rebellion of the image of God. The rebellion of his son. So what went wrong? Open in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. Man, there's a lot to say on this topic. So... I'm going to try to do it in one, one swoop, all right, because this is just overview. But there is, there is so much to talk about, especially even in these opening chapters. So what happened? What went wrong um, with God's image bearers? Well, you could summarize it like this. Humanity asserted independence from God. Humanity sought to rule not on God's behalf, but independent from Him. We sought to serve ourselves, not Him. We we were deceived. We were thinking that we knew what was best for us. We thought that life could come apart from trusting Him, remaining in a dependent relationship with Him. And as we're going to see, we were sorely wrong. So look with me here in Genesis 3, the account of the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So, like I said, there's a number of things we can point out here, but it's the account, Genesis 3, the fall of humanity. And maybe the best thing to do would just be to highlight some observations about this text and then maybe bring it all together um, for us after we make those observations. I want you to notice first that there's a complete reversal of the created order. What do you think I mean by that? There's a complete reversal of the created order in this account. What's the hierarchy of creation? Man over the beasts. beasts. And who over the man? God. Where does a woman fit in? Under the man. Yes. So ontologically equal to the man, but functionally under the man. Right? In the sense of under his authority. If that's shocking to you or new to you, we've got an entire message where we lay that out. Uh, And the significance of that and why that is so important that we nail down. Okay? 
So, there's a complete reversal here. So the serpent, he tells us in verse 1, is a beast of the field. And he's the most crafty of the beasts of the field. But the beasts of the field were created by God to be ruled over by the, by the man and the woman. In fact, Adam gave the name of the snake. Just a few verses earlier. He named this snake, which is naming. Ancient Near East is an exercise of authority. And so Adam is naming these beasts. It's, it's the, part of the, the creation order that, that Adam has is, is over. But now you have a serpent, as odd as this is, is coming in and he's talking. But he's not talking to the man. Who's he talking to? The woman. All right? And you're thinking, well, where is he? Right? Where is the man? He's got to be like on the far side of the garden, you know, extending the border a little bit. He can't be right here in the, in the midst of the garden, which is where they are. And find out that's not true. So he's talking to the woman, right? Then, the woman, what does she do? We find out that the man's not on the other side of the garden. The man's right with her, also not fulfilling his role. He was supposed to fulfill. He's not guarding or keeping the garden. He's sitting there listening to this interchange happen, watching his wife fall into deception, and then passively receiving the fruit from her. So you've got the reversal of the created order, and then God finally comes in the picture later. So you have snake, woman, man, God. So in Genesis 2, you had God, man, woman, beasts. Do you see that? It's the, the entire narrative is on its head, and that's the point. Genesis 3 starts upside down. So we already know out of the gate that this world is going to be turned over, even literarily, um, as the way this narrative unfolds. And notice, second observation, that he's crafty. The snake is crafty. And if we're not really sure what that means, we get, a, we get it in real time here as he interacts with the woman. He perverts the command of God. You see that? He said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did he say that? No. What did he say? Look back up. He told the man in verse 15 of chapter 2 to work and keep the garden. And then the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. What's the snake saying? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Did God say you shall not eat any tree? Again, it's just, he's coming in, perverting the command of God, questioning it. Hey, did he really say that? And he's insinuating in the, in the twist that God is not good. So from the beginning, very first words of this snake is he attacks the truthfulness of God's words by perverting it and then saying, ah, did he say that? Like, how can, he, how can God say that? Like, why would he do that? Why would he say that? So it kind, of, it kind of hits the woman a bit, you know, in terms of kind of catches her off guard. And her response shows that it's not super clear in her mind exactly what God has said. I mean, she kind of knows. It's been transmitted to her, apparently, because she wasn't there when God said it. Only Adam was there. She wasn't made yet. So Adam had transmitted that apparently to her. But you can see her response begins to sort of minimize the generosity of God in, in that, what he said in, in verse 16. Notice what she says. 
She says, verse 3, no, I'm sorry, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. So pretty close. But notice what God said in the beginning, back up in 16 of chapter 2. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Surely eat of every tree. Now she's saying, we may eat of the fruit of the trees. The point, God's point in the beginning is his generosity. He has thousands of trees that are sufficient, glorious and good for them to eat of. And they can eat of any of them they want. And so the abundance of God, even, in, even before he makes the prohibition, is fronted. Now she's, she doesn't say, you, she just says you should eat, uh, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Not we may eat of any of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She says, yeah, well, we may eat of them. But God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Notice she doesn't even name it. She doesn't name the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there's actually two trees in the midst of the garden. It's for another discussion. But she doesn't name it, but we just shouldn't eat of that. And then she adds this phrase, Neither shall you touch it. She's beginning to add to the word of God now. And the way that this phrase, it's emphatic. So it's... It, you, we can't know the tone necessarily, but the way, the way this feels in Hebrew is it's almost like, and he won't even let us touch it. Yeah, we may eat of any of the trees, but this one we can't eat, and he won't, even let us, he won't even let us touch that one. It's emphatic, and it's a further addition to God's command. So again, the snake's got something to work with here, and he knows it. And so now, in verse 4, She's slowly beginning to doubt the goodness of God. It's become, it's, it, God's goodness is being minimized in her mind. You can see it slowly deflating like a balloon. And then he takes his moment here to straight up uh, deny the word of God. In verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So that's a, that's a direct contradiction to what God said. You will surely die if you eat of this tree. So now he outright, outrightly denies this, and the woman, after hearing his reasoning, you will be like God, your eyes will be open, begins to meditate on this, and this becomes appealing to her. And now notice these, these words, because they're going to become key words through the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. It says, when the woman saw, you should underline saw, when the woman saw that the tree was good, you should underline good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took, you should underline took, its fruit and ate. And she also gave, and you should underline gave, some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You're going to see variations of these, these four terms. Saw, that it was good. Took and gave. You're going to see these things repeat through the narrative of the Hebrew Scriptures to to bring you back to remind you that this is rebellion against God. This is, the, this is one of the key ways that rebellion against God is highlighted throughout the narrative of the Hebrew Bible. We'll come back to that in just a second. So, like I, like I mentioned, so Eve is, is, is falling to this deception. Adam is with her. The text holds that off until the very end of this progression. So she's, you're seeing it happen. You're, internally, you're saying, no, you know, where is her husband? And then all of a sudden, Hebrew text here in the end of verse 6 says he was with her. 
You think he's got to be on the other side of the garden. But he's not. He's standing there passively by, failing, which the woman is not just culpable. And that's why God comes to Adam first between the, between the pair on the other, whenever he comes to them in judgment. So, so what happened, right? Did they just like eat the wrong tree? What happened in this interchange? What do you think? What, what were human beings doing? Okay, they chose themselves, flesh that out. What do you mean? Yep, they chose to do what they wanted instead of what God's will for them was. Yeah? They did sin. Yep. They did. They, did you see what he said? They defined, they, they, tried to, they tried to be autonomous and define the parameters of good and evil themselves by eating the tree. It's the forbidden knowledge. It's, it's the path to good and evil that God said, no, to the knowledge of good and evil that God said, you cannot, don't go down that path. Don't, don't try to go down this path apart from me, apart from trusting me, receiving my revelation for you, and living by my command, by faith. They said, we don't want that path we want to get this knowledge of good and evil, which, again, this knowledge of good and evil, if you think about this, what, what's exactly going on here? I think it has something to do with their, their reigning for God. So later you're going to see this come up again with Solomon. And Solomon's saying, I don't have any wisdom. I don't have any way to discern between good and, the knowledge of good and evil. I don't know. I need you to give it to me, God, so that I can rule like you intend. So, and God grants it to him, doesn't he? He grants him wisdom through his word to carry out the mission. So this is sort of like, hey, here's a false path of saying, I'm going to try to carry out, I'm going to live for myself, like you said earlier, live for myself, define my own mission, define all these things myself in rebellion and in autonomy from God. I can be like God, calling the shots, which was a lie. There is no life apart from Trusting God's word, ever. There's no wisdom apart from his word. We rebelled against his purpose for us, and the results then are catastrophic. So what are those, what are those results? We see, I'll just like list them out here for you. Well, there was instant fear. Instant fear. After their eyes were opened, they realized they were naked. So there's a man-made covering, you know, it's Pathetic. But verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. I was naked, and I hid myself. So it was instant fear. Instant fear. An instant recognition that the man deserves judgment because he is incapable of, of operating outside of God. He didn't become like God in the sense that he became an autonomous being, self-existent. He realized he, he is he's only invoked God's judgment. There's instant fear. Then next, there's instant blame shifting. There's instant blame shifting from like seconds after sin entered the world. 
That should be insightful for us, right? From our first John study. Instant blame shifting. Look in verse 11. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So he's blaming the woman and implicitly blaming God. Like the audacity of an image bearer to blame God for the transgression that he committed, right? But yeah, I mean, there it is. And it's happened to us ever since. We are instant blame shifters, right? It's not my fault. He made me angry. She made me angry. We talked about that on, on Thursday. It's a woman. Woman you gave to be with me. She had, and, and it didn't just stop with Adam, right? Then the Lord God said to the woman, well, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. She leads with the serpent. He did it. He deceived me and I ate. So there's instant blame shifting. But it gets worse. Next, there's a curse of the snake in 14. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So there's, a, there's an initial curse on the snake. And then you see this interesting proclamation. He says, I will put enmity between you, that's the snake, and the woman. And what does this mean? And between your offspring, the snake's children, and her offspring. Now, as weird as that sounds... He's not going to talk about baby snakes. I know, like snakes offspring, you would think like more little snakes, right? In the very next story, we're going to see this conflict in the story of Cain and Abel. So just earmark that. There's a seed of the serpent and a seed of the woman. I will put enmity between you and and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the next result is a perpetual war against the woman and her seed from Satan and his cursed seed. You see that? Perpetual war against the woman and her seed and the snake and his seed. And there will be bruising. He shall bruise your head, that is, he, the the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So much to say there, but just note in this judgment on the snake, even in the first words of God in judgment, there is hope. And what he's saying here in this bruising of the head and bruising of the heel is that the snake will bite the offspring of the woman on the heel, but the snake will receive like a fatal wound in the head. So the promise, it's not a promise in this case, it's just more of a statement of fact of this enmity, this war that's that's going to finally end in the bruising of the head of the snake, which we know comes after the bruising of of the son's heel, right? But there's hope here because what, what is latent in this verse is the hope that creation will be restored in the ultimate judgment of the snake in all he's done. 
right from the beginning here. And so you keep going. Again, we can't, we can't put a lot of comments here because we've got to keep, keep moving. Um, we notice that there is what we'll call travail in the mission. In verses 16 through 19, so you see what humanity was, was tasked with a mission, right, in the beginning to take dominion, to cultivate the earth, to have children and multiply that, that out. But now, to the woman, there's pain going to be multiplied in childbearing. The relationship between husband and wife is going to be uh, very difficult. And then to Adam, he curses the ground. So now the work aspect of dominion is difficult. So the point here is that the mission, God's fulfilling of, of his mission for creation, is going to happen through much suffering, through much difficulty. It doesn't mean it's over, but it will limp along. And there's a curse upon the ground. We're going to see that. Note that because that's going to be throughout Scripture and it's going to come up again. The, the earth has been subjected to the fall. There are, there are cosmic implications for the rebellion of the human race. Paul's going to say in Romans 8 that the creation was subjected, not willingly, but unwilling, like by Adam, essentially, in his fall. And that it awaits... Redemption. It awaits being released from its bondage and decay. It gives you a bit of, a, of an idea of how big this event really was. That all of the universe now is under corruption because of the sin of, of man. And it gives you some centrality to how, how God intends, intended and intends to use man. So much to say here. I feel like I'm like opening more cans than I'm than I'm uh, than I'm closing here, but that's okay. We can talk about it. There's future physical death. You see in this in this text, and again the mercy of God sprinkled here. He says, "By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For your dust and to dust you shall return." But there's mercy sprinkled in because right after that pronouncement, the man calls his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So he hears these judgments, he recognizes the mercy in them, and he names her Eve in faith. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them, so the Lord actually covers their nakedness properly. Again, a, a, a glimmer of hope here. And then finally, the last result, at least in this text, is that they were expelled from God's presence, from his garden. They were cut off from the tree of life, at least as it hinged on them. The Lord God said, verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God's life-giving presence is, his garden at least, is forbidden. They can't can't go back in. Angels protect the entrance, just like metaphorically. Angels protected the entrance as they were woven into the, the veils that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle and temple. So you can't, you can't come back in, just like the veil that Christ ripped with his death. 
So they were expelled from God's presence, his garden, from the tree of life. And that was like sort of the final weight here of, of, this, of this fall. So I want to take just a minute and highlight some other things from Genesis 4, 5, and 6, okay? Permit me to do that? If we have to end, we'll just end. We'll pick it up next week. In this next story is the story of Cain and Abel. And it's not just a sad story of one brother murdering another. I mean, that's, that's devastating. But it's the story of the seed of the serpent, Cain, swallowing up the seed of the woman, Abel. And it's the story of how Cain's descendants multiply numerically in their evil toward the end of this chapter. So, can't go through it now, but there's, there's several connections back from chapter 4 to chapter 3 in the descriptions of Cain to link him to the serpent. So we find that even though the woman has two physical children, the woman has two physical children, one of them acts like the snake. And one of them humbles himself, offers proper sacrifices, and is treated as a true offspring of the woman. And here again, you see this enmity playing out from chapter 3, this enmity between you and the woman. Cain murders his brother. By the way, 1 John, another connection, 1 John is going to call Satan a murderer from the beginning. Means Cain was a serpent of the snake, according to John. Okay, just another, another interesting connection there. There's so many of them. So, not only does the seed of the serpent swallow up the seed of the woman, but then his seed multiplies. So you can see toward the end of chapter 4, Cain knew his wife, verse 17, conceived for Enoch. Then he's going to go down the family line there to Lamech. Lamech was a really bad dude. And you see in verse 23, Lamech said to his two wives, uh, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. It's an escalation of Cain. And at, at its darkest moment in this chapter, notice what happens in verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. And she said, God has appointed for me another, underline this word, offspring, that's Genesis 3.15, has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And now notice this, underline this phrase, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So what happens here? God gives a replacement offspring in Seth. So the woman's line is continued. His descendants begin to return to the Lord. In verse 26, what does that mean? They call out to Him. They, they repent. We don't, we're not told how, they, how that happens, but they come back to Him in faith and repentance, acknowledging their sin, and that's viewed very positively. And so even in this, this next genealogy, where you see the, the seed of the woman, uh, the seed of Seth in particular, traced in chapter 5, Death reigns. So you're going to hear this genealogy going, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. But the offspring continues. So there's blessing in the death. God continues to multiply. The seed continues to, to multiply. 
And wildly in this narrative, there are some people, even though they're outside of the garden, that are described as walking with God. Enoch is described as walking with God. He doesn't die. The Lord just takes him. So the implication is through faith and repentance, even outside the garden, human beings can be restored to God and walk with God, albeit imperfectly, they can begin to, they can begin to walk with Him. In chapter 5. Chapter 6, you're going to see this again in Noah. And again in chapter 6, you have this culmination of sin as human beings multiply. So again, look in chapter 6. Man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God, notice this language, saw that the daughters of man were attractive, or good, literally good, and they took as their wives any they chose. You hear the fall? It's a couple chapters later, right? So then, skip down to verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Whoa! Wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. But what I want to point out here is that as man's sin multiplies, so does the seed. The seed continues, and and God's commentary on it here. But my point here is you've got a man who is is Noah. Verse 8, he's finding favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, he's a righteous man, he's blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. So this, is, this text is not saying that Noah is without sin. Because we understand that no one's without sin. What this text is saying is, according to the language of chapter 4, he has called upon the name of the Lord, he has repented, he is trusting in the Lord, and he's walking with him outside the garden, and he is preserved. He is one of the faithful within the line of the woman that is preserved through the worldwide flood because of humanity's disastrous sinful condition. And so you think, wow, well, maybe within this line of the woman, there's some hope for eventually an offspring to come from her line that will restore the created order. But one thing that that the authors of Scripture won't let you do is they won't let you make that connection. Because Noah, right after this, even though he's described as righteous, blameless, walking with God, right after the the flood, he sins. He He has his own fall experience, if you will forfeiting his faithfulness. Abraham, the next big covenantal figure, sins with Hagar. He says it saw that Hagar was good, and he took her. Then Israel, the corporate son of God, has their own fall. Right after they're given the law, they go into the wilderness, right? And what do they do? Worship a cow, an image of a golden calf. Presented there as their own fall. David, next big covenantal figure, the covenant with David. What happens? He saw that Bathsheba was good and he took her. He falls. And Solomon does the same thing. So what does this mean? It means even the best, and we're going to end here, okay? Even the best of Eve's seed are riddled through and through with sin. 
even those who turn to the Lord in repentance and faith. So what do we need as human beings? We need a man who is not like us. Right? We need a son who is perfectly faithful. And what we're going to find in the biblical narrative is that God himself comes, takes up human flesh to obey where we failed and to absorb the punishment that we all deserve. We're going to get there. I have at least two more sections in this lesson. (laughs) I knew we wouldn't get through it. I want to talk about, not just from Genesis 3 through 6, but I I want us to look at the significance of this rebellion as it's echoed throughout Scripture and the other comments that the other biblical writers make on this just to drive it home. And then I want us to come face to face with the fact that outside of Jesus, we really are this bad. All right? So I'm just putting my cards on the table. This is what I want to do. I want to eradicate pride in our hearts, or at least humble us sufficiently, as we look at how bad we were, how bad we are outside of the Lord Jesus. And I don't want us to be able to squirm away from that, okay? Because Scripture will not let us do that. Scripture will captivate us, and what that will end up doing then, even though these facts are going to be hard to face about ourselves, it's going to humble us, it's going to send us empty-handed to Christ. It's going to cause us to fling ourselves with nothing upon what He has done for us and receive it in full, All right, if we haven't already. So it, it leads us, our knowledge of our own personal sin leads us to this realization that we desperately need a son. We desperately need a savior who is unlike us, who can be our substitute. Let's pray. Father, we've just begun, and you know, to scratch the surface on our sinful condition. And I pray that um, you would help us to receive these truths. Humble us, Lord so that we might experience the freedom and the joy on the other side of treasuring Christ and his gospel. This is the black backdrop to the the glorious diamond of of what your son has done for us. And so we want to understand it. We want to see the depths of our sins so that we can see the depths of your mercy and grace and the glory of what you are recreating us into. And we want to... Um, know these realities so that we can articulate them clearly to our neighbors and friends and classmates Um, because as we saw from Adam we're all shifting blame everywhere and the only path to true life and to true hope is to when we own our sin and so we pray that you would give us grace in that thank you for the the overlap with first John just in your providence I didn't plan it that way but this is how it's it's working out we just thank you for that We ask that um, as you give us insight, you would deepen our joy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you are dismissed.